Welcome to GEMcast. I'm Christina Shenby, and today we're going to be talking about advanced care planning and what all of that means. Now, let me tell you, I thought that I understood everything there was to know about this, but it's going to be clear after you listen that I did not. And this episode is time to come out around the time of National Healthcare Decisions Day, which kicks off on April 16th. And I will include a link to their website, but basically this Decisions Day exists to, quote, inspire, educate, and empower the public and providers or physicians about the importance of advanced care planning. In this episode, I'm talking with two physicians who are experts in this area and who have done tons of research and really know what's going on. And what the problem is that one of the speakers will discuss is that often advanced care planning wishes or living wills are misinterpreted or misunderstood when patients are in the ED or in the hospital. Sometimes we over-resuscitate, sometimes we under-resuscitate. So it's important to understand what these things mean in order to provide the best care that our patients would want. So I'm going to give you a little summary of some of the big points before we start so that you know what we're getting into. So first of all, living wills, these are orders placed with a lawyer and they only go into effect after a patient is deemed to be terminally comatose or unable to have a chance of survival. On the other hand, anytime a patient is awake and able to speak, their verbal wishes take priority over everything else that is written. So those are kind of the two extremes. And then any patient who has a DNR, you know, paper or comes with that, that means do not do CPR. Whether it takes effect in respiratory arrest circumstances is apparently, and I didn't know this, but is apparently somewhat regional. So a DNR form does not necessarily mean do not do CPR. It refers specifically to cardiac arrest and doing CPR. So what I learned today is that there's actually a lot of nuance and a lot of regional variability. So it's important to know in your state what the different forms mean, what the different orders mean, etc., so that you can make sure that you're providing care to the patient that they would want. All right. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to GEMcast. Today, I am joined by two guests, Dr. Ellie and Dr. Ferdinando, and we're going to be talking about advanced care planning and healthcare decision-making. And this is perfectly timed because April 16th is National Healthcare Decisions Day week. I guess it's a whole week. And so it's important for us to be thinking and talking about this. Thank you both for being on GEMcast. I'm excited for a, a great discussion today. End-of-life care and advanced care planning are really important topics. And sometimes it can be confusing as a physician working in the ER when somebody comes in and maybe they have a pulse form or a most form or a living will or a DNR order, the so-called goldenrod form. So let's start with some definitions. Fred, do you want to start off with defining a living will and a DNR order? So first and foremost, living will documents aren't really new, but they are kind of new. You know, they started out in the late 70s or so, and they're legal documents. They're not medical documents, and they were once created to essentially have a patient decline life-saving care and treatment. But then as over time evolved, they became documents where people can either accept or decline life-saving treatments. But some of the big things that really come into play with living will documents or the definitions and what they are are, 
You know, living wills are, are really a form of communication when the patient is permanently incapacitated. That's when we're supposed to look to them. And they're supposed to become into effect or triggered into effect when patients reach certain stages. And those stages typically are a terminal condition or what's being described now as an end-stage medical condition or a persistent vegetative state. Um, they're big clarifications in what they're supposed to do or not do is that you're not supposed to follow a living will just because it exists. It really needs to come, become triggered, and that's when you're supposed to follow it. Now, the converse to that is the do not resuscitate order. Now, that's a medical order, and that's an active medical order, and depending on the state you're in, it could be written one of two ways. It could be that you would not provide CPR, and when we describe CPR, it's always been thought of as chest compressions, but it was in certain states defined as you would not provide chest compressions to a patient who's found in both cardiac and pulmonary arrest. And then in other states, it's actually written in a way where it's cardiac or respiratory arrest. So, but the one thing that needs to be clarified, is people seem to think that do not resuscitate orders apply to all ACLS interventions and so on. And the reality of it is from the way the term evolved and really its definition, it really just pertains to chest compressions. Oh, that's really interesting. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit more before we move on, because this happens all the time. Somebody will come in with a DNR form, the yellow one, but that you're saying only means do not do chest compressions. So in theory, a patient could still receive uh, shocks, could still receive, you know, IV epi, could still be intubated, all of those other components of ACLS. Is that right? Yeah. So it, the, the confusing thing is it all depends where you're at. Huh. It all depends on where you're at and how the policy's written. So again, in certain states, it, it it really is compressions. In clinical practice, it's always become a mix of two. If they're in cardiac arrest, you know, it, it's it's basically to define nothing. Um, but if they're not inside cardiac arrest, then then it's a completely different hodgepodge of definitions to, and and clinical practice, just depending where you are. And is there a place, where could somebody go to find out, okay, in my state, what are the legal implications of this DNR order? Every state will have, every state that has a DNR Act will actually have a site on their, you know, Department of Health page or whatever that will actually describe what the do not resuscitate order is. Now, like in Pennsylvania, all the information has essentially disappeared um, because of what happened a few years ago and how they passed the pre-hospital do not resuscitate order. So the Department of Health here doesn't really populate on their website as far as what a DNR order is, but they'll populate what a pre-hospital DNR order is. And those are completely different. A pre-hospital DNR versus a hospital DNR are different orders. Hmm. So they then leave it up to the hospital facilities to define in policy what they mean by a do not resuscitate order. So I think the first place to start is really their hospital policy to take a look and see what that order actually defines. I wanted to agree with Fred in that it actually depends on the state that you're in. Specifically, I'll speak to the state of Florida because that's where I currently practice and I'm licensed. A DNR order actually does include a respiratory arrest so that if the patient is found not breathing, that they would not be intubated. So it's not just about compressions and, and CPR, but it also is in the event of respiratory arrest. So those patients would uh, not be intubated. So I think that there is nuance depending on the state that you're in, and it is important to understand what your state regulations dictate uh, in terms of the practice of the DNR document. Mm. But in terms of the lowest common denominator, if a patient comes in in cardiac arrest, so no pulse, 
and has a DNR order, they would not get chest compressions. That's at least the least common denominator, right? Correct. That is supposed to be how it works out okay. in reality. Excellent. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on now to the pulsed and most forms. Carmel, do you want to address those definitions? The POLST stands for the Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. The POLST is essentially part of the advanced directive documents that patients will complete and essentially no different than a DNR in that it is a physician's order. The thing is with the POLST is that it addresses a common issue that many many, uh, clinicians, physicians find at the bedside, which is that perhaps they are a DNR, but they're not necessarily in cardiopulmonary arrest. Perhaps they're in respiratory distress, and how should they proceed in that particular case? And so the POLST orders actually provide some more information or options to be a little bit more selective regarding uh, what type of care you'd want, whether that would be receiving non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, fluids, antibiotics. There are additional options that are allowed or can be directed to the provider that, that sees the patient in order to either withhold or provide treatments that would be consistent with the patient's wishes. And generally, these are completed by the physician in the presence of the patient, and so these are usually goal concordant, uh, meaning both the physician and the patient agree on the types of treatments that they would prefer in the event of certain life-threatening illnesses or conditions. And then how is the most form different, or is it basically the same? The MOLST and the POLST are essentially the same. MOLST would stand for medical orders versus physician orders, but different states use different terminology. There's still about a little over 20 states states that don't necessarily have either a MOLST or POLST available in their jurisdiction. You have to basically confer with your legal team within your institution to figure out exactly what forms are being utilized. Great. Well, now that we have those definitions, let's talk about some of the challenges in terms of their interpretation. We've already discussed the DNR form a little bit. Fred, do you want to start off with some of the challenges interpreting these other forms? First and foremost, I guess I want listeners to realize that when we talk about some of these issues and these challenges, I want providers to start thinking of these things as similar to medical errors. I mean, these these are true medical errors that we don't call medical errors. And I think we need to start really facing that because if we tack it in that fashion, then maybe we'll see some gains in actual developments that will actually enhance patient care rather than all of us talking about issues but not really getting anywhere to fix some problems. First and foremost, when I talk about patient safety risk behind living will documents and pulse documents, it's related to interpretation. And there's differences between providers who could be a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, a physician assistant, and the physician. And physicians typically are trained with a heck of a lot more scope in training and understanding of of the disease pathology and to be able to know what differences are and the nuances are. When you look at documents themselves, back in 2005, I think it was, we published a study in the Journal of Patient Safety. It was our very first triad study that looked at an 80% misinterpretation rate. Anytime a medical provider, such as a physician, would look at a living will document, 80% of the time they would find it to equate with a do not resuscitate order. And that's a pretty scary number to have a baseline understanding of what documents are that we tell people and advocate to people to do as part of your estate plan and to make sure you protect your wishes. So Fred, can I just clarify? So you're saying since a patient would come in with a living will, people, physicians then thought that that meant do not resuscitate, even if it didn't specifically say do not resuscitate on the living will? Correct. That's a pretty major discrepancy. So, and then when you look at that discrepancy, 
that discrepancy in how people fill out living will documents now today is translating into creation of post documents or most documents, depending on your state. So the most common error I see that is if a patient has a living will that declines everything, some some medical provider, maybe not a physician, maybe a physician is then interpreting that document into a post order. And their their interpretation is often DNR with comfort measures only which isn't really that patient's intention or what that living will was actually saying. And then if a patient actually has a living will that has, you know, the cafeteria style menu on the living will where you can say yes to intubation, no to chest compressions, yes to dialysis and so on. And then all of a sudden their, their pulse is being, or their living will is being translated into a pulse document or order that's DNR with limited treatment interventions. When again, that's not really the patient's intentions. So you can actually have a living will declining everything and have a post document that says CPR full treatment order. But providers, even physicians at times, have, I guess, problems comprehending that, which adds further confusion and further risk to patient safety. Because when you look at post documents, even in their safest form in our research study, when you look at somebody that has a CPR full treatment order, there's still a 4% misinterpretation rate as an end-of-life care order. And then when you look at patients that have DNR comfort measures only formatted on their form, there's a 17 to 20% over-resuscitation rate or error in the provider's understanding of what they should be doing, depending on what that patient's presenting with. Carmel, any experience with, with this portion? I wanted to just dovetail this because this is a very interesting, not only is it an interesting discussion, but I think it highlights some of the findings that were in the Institute of Medicine report uh, back in 2014, where they uh, identified that oftentimes the end-of-life care that's provided to patients is frequently intensive and consistent with patients' preferences. And, and one of the recommendations made by that report was that there should be ongoing clinician-patient discussions of -of end-of-life care preferences over time uh, to make sure that there would be goal-concordant care. And so with that being said, the living wills are drafted in in, in a fashion in which they they need to be interpreted by physicians, every single one. In fact, most living wills, uh, the vast majority that I've seen in in in, in most states have stated that in my physician's opinion, if I'm bound to have a terminal illness or if I have a persistent state of unconsciousness that I would prefer, and then there are a number of wishes that are outlined. I think that Fred has found is that oftentimes there are multiple providers who are not necessarily physicians that are probably involved in interpreting some of these documents, but even physicians, as they're interpreting the documents, don't recognize that it isn't ultimately up to them to interpret the state of medical care or their illness that would deem them either to be in a terminal state, end stage state, or in a persistent state of unconsciousness, which then would activate that living will. And I think that that's the piece that often gets missed. So what we have so far in terms of definite facts, if a patient has a DNR and they're in cardiac arrest, they do not get chest compressions. We also have as a definite fact, the living will does not kick in until the patient is incapacitated in a permanent vegetative state. Is that correct? Actually, all of these documents are designed to execute care for the incapacitated patient. And so, again, the discussions are very important. And so if, if there's a patient that they are capacitated, that patient's capacitated wishes uh, mm-hmm. supersede all documents yes. that are present. So all documents, whether they be a power of attorney, a living will, a DNR, 
or a pulsed or mulsed should only be utilized if the patient is in an incapacitated state. Yes. Otherwise, patients' capacitated wishes should supersede all documentation. Absolutely. So if a patient comes in with a DNR, but they're awake and talking and says, no, I want everything done, we do everything. The challenge, of course, is when they come in unable to speak or in cardiac arrest, and then we have to figure out really, really quickly what they would want done. Let's think a little bit more about what are ways to perhaps bring clarity to this. Fred, do you want to start out with this? One of the studies we did called a triad 8 study published a couple of years ago, again, in the Journal of Patient, study, Journal of Patient Safety, was, was a nationwide study that we did involving, I think it was 18 centers across the country and looked at, looked at hospitalist medicine, emergency medicine. They took a look at clinical scenarios with paper documents, such as the living will or post, Another group or survey B of it was basically the same clinical scenarios, same paper documents, but this time had a scripted what we call patient-to-clinician video. And that's basically a script that a patient will read into video clarifying their, their intentions. And that little tidbit of information essentially produced response rates that hit what we put as a goal as far as consensus or the decision to not provide the treatment and allow the patient to die naturally. The other thing it did was clarify the misunderstandings of code status. So if you had a living will and you had a patient clinician video attached with it, they were able to basically correctly interpret the document to make sure that the patient was a full code when they wanted to be a full code and a DNR when they wanted to be a DNR. So that by far has been what I've seen, what, what I think has been the game changer in this whole scenario here. We've never been able to actually bring in the patient's true intentions into the clinical scenario unless they're awake and talking to us. And if they're not awake and talking to us, they're incapacitated, you run the risk of someone believing capacitation is just where they are at that particular point in time. When documents are really for permanent incapacitation, mm-hmm. not just right. because you're back from a UTI and can't answer today and run the risk of someone you know, enacting your living will document or so on. Hmm. Okay, I see what you're saying. So these videos provide a little more clarity from the patient so that if they're sick, such as septic, but not in cardiac arrest, they're not permanently incapacitated. So you would resuscitate with IV fluids, IV antibiotics, and give suppressors or blood products, et cetera, until they were permanently incapacitated, and then their living will would kick in. Yeah, video would kick in at all points and essentially be able to then interject in that clinical scenario. So if Fred has a question when I'm treating a septic patient, I can look to that video and say, oh, okay, this is what she really wanted, not she's at end-of-life care right here and now. She may progress to end-of-life care, which is fine, and we have to respect that, but the initial upfront care treatment and stabilization or resuscitation really shouldn't be affected by that living will document. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, a pulse is different. That's an active medical order. So if somebody comes in septic with a pulse that says DNR, CMO on it, we really should be respecting that patient's choice. If that document was created correctly, if that order was Mm -hmm. created correctly, we really should be respecting that patient's choice to die naturally. Okay. So the pulse is for at all times. So it's an order for this is what they want, comfort measures only, or whatever it is. And the living will only kicks in if they're permanently incapacitated. You know, there's enough complexity around all of these documents that 
yes, if uh, it sounds like your video program is fantastic and has a lot of potential. Unfortunately, most places don't have that option. And even just looking up for our own patients who are in our system, looking up where the end of life wishes are documented can be challenging, or sometimes there's multiple different orders or they've changed over time, or a patient comes in from out of state and we have no information on them at all. I think the right thing to do is still to err on the side of caring for them um, as much as possible because, again, if I save a patient who I have no information about and I don't know what their wishes are, I'm going to save them and resuscitate them as best I can. And I think at the end of the day, we have to do what's ethically right and morally right and clinically right and meets the patient's wishes to the best of our knowledge at the time of their care. Completely agree. So if there were something that you wanted to impart as we kind of close to physicians and uh, say one or two last tips or bits of advice, what would that be? None of these documents are foolproof. They were designed to essentially allow physicians to meet the spirit of the intent of the document, which is in order to ensure that there are goal-concordant wishes that are executed at the end of life. There are studies that even document uh, that the patient surrogate, the, the healthcare surrogate that they have designated often is also inaccurate and makes mistakes about what they felt the patient's wishes should be. I don't know that we're ever going to find a foolproof mechanism for ensuring that we 100% of the time are doing exactly what the patient had intended. But I do believe that these living wills and these advanced directives are a great step forward to honor the wishes of our patients who the vast majority of them believe that physicians are capable of not only having these discussions with them, but also uh, in executing their wishes when they're at a point in their lives when they would not necessarily want these uh, things to be done. Finally, I think the other component is that these documents do not place a discussion. There have to be end-of-life discussions with the patient, with the family, by the physician in order to ensure and clarify what the goals of care are at every visit, especially in a patient that's going to be admitted to the hospital. For myself, I mean, I, th I think there needs to be a check and verify process. In Triad 6 and 7, we published a checklist, essentially a resuscitation pause checklist, which is an A, B, C, E, D, E mnemonic to essentially A, ask the patient or family if they have a living will, a pulse, or even a video, be, be clear if they are permanently incapacitated, if they have a terminal condition or persistent vegetative state. C in that mnemonic is essentially clarifying or communicating clearly. You're the physician. They're looking to you for clarification on what this process is. And D in that mnemonic was designing a care plan for that patient. Patients and families need to know it's okay not to institute aggressive intervention if that's truly their wishes or design the plan for them. Tell them you can provide the care and treatment for 24 to 48 hours, see if there's benefit, and if not, then set it up for, you know, the explanation of what hospice is. And hospice does great work when it's the appropriate time for them to get in there and can provide lots of family support to the family. The other thing I would say in closing is look to clarify patient intentions. Paper documents aren't practical anymore, and technology does leverage the ability to capture patient intentions, either with audio or video or audio and video, and I think systems really need to look to see how they can do things better. Remember, we get paid now with advanced care planning codes to be able to have these kinds of discussions, and that provides a benefit to see a physician to do that that you don't get when you go see an attorney to have a living will created. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your expertise 
And hopefully this will be helpful for physicians who are on the ground in the trenches working and trying to do their best to care for patients and to make sure that we respect their wishes. So thank you both very much. Great. Thank you both. Thank you.